0: Alright, Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter three. We got a bigger chunk of of uh scripture to cover here tonight. We didn't get a chance last week. We had all those strange things going on with uh COVID concerns and it just it pretty much wiped out my Sunday school class with uh threat because we were all meeting on Wednesday nights here too. And it was a good night they said for a group hug and prayer meeting. And guess what? Within hours, one of them came down with it, and it's like, ah! So, it changed a lot for us. But uh, anyway, we're good. Thank the Lord for that. Second Peter three eight through fifteen. I know it's a big, big chunk, but there's a reason for putting all these things together. I'm going to try to cover all this tonight. We'll see how that works. Uh, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, blameless and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation just as also our beloved Paul according to the wisdom given him wrote to you or stop right there at the comma but there's more to it so we're going to stop there, that's a handful as you can see it deals with two facts and three things you are to do does that sound simple? two facts and three things to do and so I have a, a title with this it's, it won't be long I like that phrase. It won't be long. And we're going to talk about it here tonight. Let's start with fact number one. The Lord is patient. We dealt with this previously a little bit, so I'm not going into great depth with it. But in verse 8 and 9, it talks about His promise and His patience. Especially in verse number 9. He is patient towards you. Remember, that was toward the reader. That's not toward the world so much as it is toward the reader... He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Um, Peter's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. But in that, there is a a message to us as to, beloved, listen to this. And he's patient toward us. There's a promise that goes with this. And verse number 14 especially uh, would highlight why is he patient with us because we are to be looking for these things, be diligent, to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, I think we have a job we should be doing. And He's patient toward us. But just set that to the side for a minute. Notice as He started verse number 8. Brother, do not let this one fact escape your notice. There's a notice here, a fact that is just uh, stated here. The Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. That's a quote, by the way, you know, from the book of Psalms. It's Psalm number 90. Psalm number 90, we don't have a whole lot of time to dig through it. Believe it or not, there's just not a lot. I've got too much. But uh, Psalm number 90 talks about man's just dust. And it's amazing that God puts up with us. How He works all these things with how great he is, and he knows how fragile we are and how sinful we are and all that. And it it just speaks of the great patience of our God while we're going through this world as people of dust who sin. And yet, the Lord's patience toward us is woven all the way through Psalm 90. You could enjoy that sometime here this evening, but not not right now, but sometime. Uh, But it's God's patience toward us in Psalm 90. And Peter brings out, you know, that whole phrase that one year is a Day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. What is that saying? It's simple. Verse number 9. The Lord is patient. This is a fact that we mark with. The Lord is patient. He is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's patient. It's very interesting to me. Because earlier in this chapter, when Peter is talking about Noah... Or he talks about the flood, or he brings up water, or things of that nature. He must have been very impressed with that. As you can see all the way in verse number 5 and 6, he talks about, this is what they forgot the first time. Uh, they thought that, you know, everything stays the way it is, and they forget that the earth and the heaven was destroyed, being flooded by water. Earlier in Peter's writing, Second Peter, chapter 2 verse 5 again a picture of God's patience and yet his judgment he and he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly God waited 120 years after he told Noah to build that ark before he destroyed the world 120 years of patience while that ark was being preserved put together. Peter wasn't done with that. First Peter actually chapter 3 and verse number 20. He did it again. He talks about those who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few if that is 80 persons were brought safely through the water. Now you know Peter was a fisherman and water is a big deal to him and probably thinking along the lines of Noah quite a bit. But in this Every time he brings it up, he shows, yes, God is going to judge unbelievers, but he's so patient. He's so patient. And that's not typically the way we respond to things that bother us, but that's God's patience. And this one fact is set before us, because that's the character of our God. He's long-suffering. Long-suffering. Isn't that something a believer ought to be, too? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. That's the same word. Yes, it is. It's supposed to be our characteristic. Long-suffering. And by the way, First Corinthians 13. Love, love is patience. Same word. It keeps showing up in Scripture, talking about how exercising patience is really a description of what God has done in our lives, how He has changed us to be like Him, and what He is ultimately... And I know I maybe it's just me, but I look out at the world, I see the you know headlines of the paper, and I say, "Oh Lord, come now, You know my patience is a little thin when I read things like that, but God sees that all the time, and he's patient, but that doesn't mean he's negligent he's patient that's fact number one we said, his patient will end verse number ten that's fact number two, but After all that on patience, and is willing that nobody should perish. But, the day of the Lord will come. Will come. There's a statement of reality here. This is not a maybe. Did you see a maybe in your text? No. The day of the Lord will come. It will come. That There is a day when patience ends. It will come. There was a day in Noah's day when patience ended. And suddenly it started to rain. The day will come. The day of the Lord will come. And you know, there's a a richness in the theology of that term. You could go way into the Old Testament and start digging out verse after verse after verse of the day of the Lord. And I'll tell you how simple this is. None of it looks real too happy. I don't want to be a part of most of that. Because he describes the battle of Armageddon he described the tribulation period he descri- describes wars and, and chaos and and, and uh, plague and well Joel is a good place if you want a good mouthful of it just read out the book of Joel uh, chapter 2 especially into chapter 3 chapter 2 he talks about the sun turning to blood and the moon and the darkness and, and all these other incredible things will come on that day And uh, what's interesting to me, he's describing things and scenes that later are identified to us as the Battle of Armageddon and the return of the Lord, the second coming, and such like that. In Acts chapter 2, that's the same passage Peter quotes in the Sermon at Pentecost. You know what? It rattled the people sitting there. He starts to read off verses about judgment, judgment, and what did they just do? Peter pointed it out. Have you just crucified? You crucified Jesus Christ, the one who was sent from God. He's the Messiah. He's our Savior. You crucified Him. And can you imagine suddenly the look on their face like, Oh boy, are we in trouble. And he uses this same passage out of Joel. Rattles them good and they suddenly said, What do we do to be saved? Because they knew they were in trouble. Judgment is used a lot in Scripture this way. When when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, he starts talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. What was interesting in that, in chapter 4, if if you picture the outline of this, in chapter 4, starting around verse 13 or so, he describes the rapture, and he says, this is a mystery. You didn't know this. I'll tell you this. And he writes it all out. Chapter 5, he says, but this you know. And he starts describing the day of the Lord. Because that has been well documented in Scripture. Over and over and over and over again, the emphasis is that God is going to punish. That day will come. The mockers in chapter 3 said, Oh, no it won't. (laughs) You know, everything's like it's always been. God's never punished anybody. You know, what they forgot was the flood. Right? They forgot Sodom and Gomorrah, probably. And here, they're like, nope, he's not going to do it. But the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. That is not the rapture. Okay? Remember that back in the 1970s or so? The thief in the night movie? Scared me to death as a kid. We sat there in church watching that on the big old reel. And we're watching that, and I'm thinking, oh, this is frightful! The the Thief in the Night, the rapture occurs, and they missed it, and all these white vans driving around with Unite, interesting, on the side of the vans, chasing down people because they were Christians and all this stuff. It was so weird. It, it was just meant to paralyze us in fear, I'm sure. But uh, we're not going to show that movie tonight. Um, but that was that was a long time ago. It would come like a thief. Interesting. We're going to talk about that in a second. But mark something here. If the day of the Lord will come, that means God has a plan, right? That means He's in charge of this. He knows the day, He knows the time. It's said in chapter three, verse seven. if you just jump there, I'm moving a bit, but these this present heavens and earth are being reserved reserved. You go to a restaurant that you know you have to make reservations to get into. Your name's on there for a certain time, and they know you're coming. And you go in there, and they say, sure, you made reservations. God has put reservations on this earth for this day. It's coming. It's reserved for judgment of ungodly men. But it will, will happen. This is reality. Watch these words. It will happen. That's the case of reality, by the way, in the Greek it will arrive it will come just as a thief that means god knows but you don't like i said this is not the rapture this is the second coming of christ the day of the lord the judgment that's coming here we're not we don't know that date the lord didn't know that date he's not he's not talking about you know the rapture we talk about the rapture god doesn't steal us right He just calls us home. This idea of a thief. Who's ever happy about a thief coming? Nobody here. Okay. That's the picture of the second coming. It's not supposed to be a happy event. A thief will come, sneak in when they're not expecting it. Do we expect it? Yes, it's right there. Do the unbelievers expect it? No, because they don't even believe it. They're mocking it. But it will happen. Okay, you mark that. Second thing it says in verse 10, this day the Lord will come in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavens go first. I could only imagine standing on earth. I try to visualize this a little bit. Standing on earth and seeing the heavens stripped away in front of your eyes. You know, you're in trouble when that happens. Just think about that. The heavens will go first. They will pass away. That... It was, there's a word here that's kind of interesting. It's a whoosh sound that comes with it. It's a a rushing wind whizzing sound, almost like a crash and a whiz and this rapid motion. The Greeks used to say it was the sound of an arrow going by. You know, with the little feathers and all, it goes right by, and this this suggests speed and power at the same time commentators for years said it was the atomic bomb and they said that because they said while they were testing these in Nevada a reporter said that there was this whirling sound that and then there was a cracking sound that went with it and, and so they said it's somewhat like that but the reality is it's not an atomic bomb, it's God God is the one who's destroying, not, he's not going to sit back and let the world figure out how to destroy itself God would destroy this earth. And the heavens go first. And the basic elements of the world follow. Notice how it keeps on going. Where the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Destroyed. Elements. Oxygen. Oxygen. Hydrogen. We're not talking about trees and plants so much, as we're talking about the elements. The fundamental things, the arrangements, the laws that work inside down to the finest piece, burning with intense heat, dissolved, broken up and melted. Pretty impressive. And the earth and its works will follow behind that. They will be burned up, according to the verse. Totally consumed is the nature of this. When is this happening? Well, put it down. We're living today We have a rapture yet to occur hopefully tonight we have a tribulation for seven years we have a millennial for a thousand years then after that thousand years guess what this happens it could be a thousand and seven years from tonight all right send that note to Washington right Steve let them know don't panic about tomorrow thousand seven years but the Lord is patient, isn't He? Still, look at our world. And He's going to give it another thousand and seven years. He could just say, I'm done. Gone. Because that's how He made things, right? With His Word. But He's already set His plan. That's His patience. That's His patience. You want more in that? Revelation 20, 11, all the way through chapter two, 21, verse 1. It talks about the earth and the the heavens fleeing away, running away at the presence of the Lord. When He arrives, they're gone. And He's using the same idea as a whoosh. It's gone. The present heavens and the present earth. That's the Lord's patience. Now, I've thought this through a little bit, and I thought, well, there's some interesting things that should go with this. Number one, people think, number one, that there are certain things on this earth that just don't burn. All right, I mean, generally, they they have this opinion that, you know, gold could melt and all that kind of stuff, but does it ever burn? Do you know gold burns? At the temperature of 1,948 degrees, it disintegrates in the heat. Don't ever get your ring that close to a fire that hot. Right? They say, well, diamonds! Diamonds could last through something, too. At 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit, a diamond will melt. It's pretty impressive. That's pretty hot. What's the point? Everything can melt. It can melt. But here's something also I think you might find interesting. you notice something in chapter 3, verse 6. During the time of the flood, the world was destroyed, right? You see that? Chapter 3, verse 6. During the flood, the world was that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Uh, verse number 7. It talks about that the present heavens and earth are being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, when we get over to verse number 10, it says, And the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed. You see that word destroy and destruction keep popping up here? There are those who argue today, and I've heard them, and I've seen them, and it's getting more prevalent today, that this present earth is not going to be destroyed in the way that we think. They say it's pretty much kind of like the flood. It's going to be ruined and it's going to be revitalized. It's going to be refurbished or whatever you want to call it for that word. Uh, that is a common understanding in eschatology today, that we're not getting a brand new earth. Like it says later on in verse number Thirteen. It's not brand new, or it's, it's a, lack of a better word, refurbished. It's going to be cleaned up, it's going to be fixed, you know, uh, those kind of things. You could buy computers this way now, can't you? A refurbished computer, do you trust them? That's a different question. All right, so, anyway, I was looking through these words, and I thought something very interesting popped up, because my personal opinion is that verse number 13, a new heaven and a new earth is not the same as the present heaven and the present earth. And I'll show you why I think that. Verse number 6, destroyed. The world that was destroyed by water, it was technically called ruined. The Greek word is the word for ruined. It was made useless in that regard. It was destroyed in that sense, and that was because of what the water did to it. Did it disappear? No. Same earth. When it gets to verse number 7, it talks about the destruction of ungodly men. It's the same word. It means ruined. Now, that says something theologically very important to us, because when a man who refuses, who's ungodly, refuses the blood of Christ, or forgiveness of sins, or salvation, any term you want to put in there, and he goes into eternity, he doesn't disappear. He's not annihilated. He's not gone. He's still alive. And they use the word destroyed there, or perish there. Yes, John 3.16, the same word. He is still alive, but he's ruined if the word is is understood, He's destroyed. He's ruined. There's nothing good coming out of that. Right? That's the word that Peter uses for those instances there. When he jumps down to the fire... He's talking about in chapter 3, verse 10, and it says that the uh, elements will be destroyed. He uses the word luo, a different Greek word. Luo is a fun word. It just spells l-u-o, l-u-o, luo. It is the word we teach all of our Greek students when they have to learn to parse out verbs in the present tense, and in the uh, future tense, and in the past tense of all the various forms. That we use the word "luo" for our paradigm for all of them, all of them. They see that word for four years, four semesters. That's the only word they see on a verb chart that you know they have to memorize. This "luo" word. It means to loose, to untie, to destroy. All right. Now I tell them when they learn the paraphrase, I am loose, you are loose, he, she, it is loose. All right, those kind of words. I, I walk them through that. On my quizzes, they write back, I am destroyed, you are destroyed, he, she, it is destroyed. Because they use the same words, they just flip the, the words. They just love to destroy the Greek language, I guess. But they bring that up all the time. And I tell them, well, that's fine. I don't mind seeing it on the quizzes when they answer them. But it's also the word used when they went and loosed the donkey that Jesus was to write on. Don't put the wrong word in the passage. Because they didn't destroy the donkey. They just untied it. Now, what's all this about? This little luo word is different from the upper words you just saw. Luo means to untie something, and he's talking about the elements. Bust them apart. Untie them. Let them loose. And we have learned over time that when you take an element and you break it in half and split it, and all these, guess what happens? Wow, it's incredible, isn't it? This is this is Greek back from the first century A.D. talking about something that scientists have just discovered in the last century or so that elements can bust apart and they're they're destructive as can be, and God's going to untie them. He's going to loose them. Verse number twelve. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed. There again. He's going to untie it and let it loose. Just boom. It's not to be put together again. In other words, as you can see, those are two different terms. One has the hope of rebuilding, which was the flood. The second one has no hope at all. It's untied. It's just loose. And you say, wow, okay, that's interesting. But then move down to verse 13. Verse 13 where it says we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. Kainos is the Greek word there. It's got the word new in it. It's a word we use for something that's existed for a short time. We talk about a newborn baby. That's different than a 12-year-old, right? Or should be. But a newborn baby is short time. It's actually the word for unused. And suddenly I say, Oh... An unused heaven. An unused earth. That's not refurbished. That's brand new. Peter's words here are not accidental. The Holy Spirit's guiding him through these things. And it's interesting to me because people today are changing the meaning of those words to match the theology they want. And unfortunately, aren't just go out and say it. The new theology that's circling around with refurbished things and stuff matches the Green Deals and everything else in our day and age. It's an incorporation of the political view that this earth is going to be our home forever. And it's like, no, it's not. I'm just concerned about that because it's being woven in very carefully. And when we stop and take a look at the actual words here, God's going to destroy this earth. Not in the same fashion as before. He's going to untie it down at the very elements and break it all apart. And he's going to build a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And I'm pretty sure that's what he's saying here because it matches everything else we have in Scripture. If you want the same words, go to 2 Corinthians five twenty, No, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a... new creature! You want to be a refurbished old man? No! The old man's passed away. New things have come. That's a new man in Christ. You don't want to be used. (laughs) New! And that's the beauty of the passage. And people are stripping that word away from us. And it's bothering me. And I guess I just expressed that, didn't I? But the whole passage is talking about something God's in charge of. Not man. This is God's plan. And He will cause it to happen. He will punish. He will reach that day when this day happens. It's a pretty powerful section. So, with one through or seven through ten, right there, eight through ten, we see that God has a promise that he will keep. He has a reservation that he's going to hold to. And things will be destroyed, just as he said. That's his promise, and that's the fulfillment of it. The day of the Lord will come. Now what do we do? What do we do? He starts right away in verse number 11 with the passage to believers here. Because you're not going to be a part of the tribulation. Praise the Lord for that. You're not going to be part of those who are destroyed. Praise the Lord for that. Because of Christ in you. That's not going to happen to you. But what you do need to respond to in verse number 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way... What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What's going to last forever? The things of this earth? No. But what do we invest so much into? The things of this earth. That's what people do. And we tend sometimes to get so wrapped up into it when he says, you know what really counts for all eternity? Godliness. Godliness. Holy conduct the right reaction of a believer it's it's all the way through this book of Peter he says consider your conduct consider your conduct consider your conduct you know verse number 11 is not a question what sort of people are you to be he's not asking you to decide the answer to that he already knows the answer doesn't he you don't see a question mark at the end of verse 11 do you no it's a statement it's something you ought to be. The word ought is the word for binding. It's it's your obligation. It's what is necessary. In light of God's promises, in light of God's patience, in light of God's punishments, we have an obligation. What ought we to be? What is right now necessary? And he's not talking about the future, he's talking about right now. It's a present tense verb. Right now, what is it we're supposed to be? Well, we're saved, right? That's good. All right. We're, we're saved from condemnation, aren't we? Romans 8, is it? Verse 1? Therefore, any bandy in Christ? Nope, that's not it. What is it? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Is that it? Right? What's the one that's talking about we are therefore is there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Is that eight one? What's that? Romans eight one. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Okay, no condemnation. you have been justified. Um we're free from the wrath of God, aren't we? Yes. That is also true. We can find verses for that. If we're saved from it Sin, penalty of sin, the wrath of God, condemnation, if we're saved from it, should we still live in it? That sounds like Romans 6 suddenly, doesn't it? If we're saved from ungodliness, shouldn't our life reflect that? What ought we to be? Peter could have used that with any passage in Scripture and brought that up. What ought we to be in light of who we are? We're to be holy. Holy. Set apart is the word. It's the same word for sanctified. Set apart from sin. Yes. Set apart to God. Because set apart is not just, you know, nowhere. We're set apart for a purpose. We're set apart from sin, but we're set apart to God. There's our purpose. And He says, You're to be holy. You're set apart in your behavior. The way you live. You're set apart in godliness. Godliness is an interesting word. It means good reverence. Good reverence is the nature of godliness. And you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, scripture says. We can go through all the way through this with different responses, but you know where it starts. It's right here. What's a believer's response to the nature of what Peter is preaching here? Number one, we're to have holy conduct and godliness. That's the way we're supposed to be living right now in light of the fact that we know the future. Live that way. It's, a, it's not a question, I told you. It's an exclamation more than anything else. Because the world mocks at the God's judgment. We saw that. They go on living ungodly lives. Chapter 3, verse 3 here. The believer knows this judgment is going to occur. So it propels him to live a set-apart life. Our world desperately needs Christians who live set-apart. We need that today. We need people to understand that I need to get away from the things that God's going to destroy. They're pointless. They don't have value. Why invest so much into that when He wants me to invest in my conduct that is holy? Remember Peter said it this way too. Be ye holy, God said, because I am holy. That should be the motivation, our response right away. But add to it these things too. We should have an eternal perspective. We should think this way. Because in verse number 12, this fact that you are to live this way is in light of the fact that you are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now this might sound hard. But what he's talking about is the day when the heavens will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. It says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. It sounds like something you want to avoid, not hope it comes. Why would anybody want to hope it comes? Why wouldn't we want to hope that it comes? Any ideas? Does we just love a good fire? We got a lot of marshmallows ready. Why should we look for it? Why should we wait for it? Why should we be anxious about it coming? What's that? Deliverance is a good word. It brings in the new. Isn't that true? You got to get rid of the old to get the new. God will be satisfied. Shouldn't that be our heart's desire? The satisfaction of our God? God will be satisfied. Sin will be dealt with. Think of it. What's the new heaven and new earth is all about? What lives there? Righteousness. Wouldn't you love to live in an earth that's just covered with righteousness? Sin will be gone. The effects of sin will be gone. Any believer ought to desire that day prophecy will be fulfilled. Don't you love it when God's word is fulfilled in your life? When you see it with your eyes, you say, wow! That's just what he promised. I think of this when I think of that, that leper. The day Jesus came to him. I love this story. almost It makes me cry. This poor leper. He's doomed. He's, he's, he's got the leprosy, and you know how that works. And he's coming through, and Jesus goes and heals him. And he tells him, i go show yourself to the priest. And most people say, okay, what's that all about? Back in the law code, the priests were given the instructions on how to purify a leper. That had never happened before. Naaman was sent off. He wasn't a Jew. Remember Naaman the leper? He wasn't a Jew. But this was the first Jew healed of leprosy presenting himself before the temple and the priest saying, okay, let's do the law thing. And they're like, what? 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 Fulfilled for the first time. Can you see them blow their minds trying to figure this one out? Lepers don't heal. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day and see prophecy fulfilled? Why else would God have put that in the law code? He needed it later. These things are going to be fulfilled. And we should want that. We should desire that. I know it's a horrible event, but look at this. God satisfied sin is dealt with prophecies fulfilled. That's so exciting. Everything is made right. Everything is made right. That's what it says in verse number 13. There is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Imagine that everything right. Whew. We anticipate this. You know, God promised it. Right there, you read it. You're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to get up there and say, oh, this isn't what I wanted. All right? It's going to be fulfilled. Righteousness will dwell there permanently. Permanently. This word for dwell, this is such a cool little Greek word. If a visitor comes and stays in your house and uses this word you might as well make his room up forever. He's not leaving. Alright? If he ever says that word, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to look it up. But if he comes in and he says, this is where I'm going to dwell, he's not leaving. And that's the word that they use here. It's where righteousness dwells. And I'm just looking forward to seeing what does an earth look like like that? Righteousness. 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 You may be asking while you're thinking here, and I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. Why did he destroy the heavens? I mean, we're going to heaven someday. We like that and all that stuff. Do You know, heaven has Satan's footprints all over it. He's up there all the time. Isn't he? What does he do about the brethren? Fuses them day and night. Wouldn't he be glad, he be glad to know his footprints aren't in the new heaven and new earth? Gone. Never touched with his presence. Never. I, I just think, wow, this is really great. Okay, so we're supposed to consider our conduct, consider your efforts as well. Look in verse number fourteen. Therefore, beloved, since you know you anticipate these things, be diligent. There's our that's a verb, by the way. That's a, a imperative verb. That's a command. He says, "Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and." blameless, to be found that way. To be found that way. How do you want Jesus to find you when He comes again? Look at three things you can be involved in right now. It goes right back to the basics of it all. You're growing in God's grace. You have patience. You have knowledge. You know what's going on. But you're found in peace and spotless and blameless. What great adjectives those are. Something to aim for. That's our efforts. We should invest in those things. We should be diligent in those things. It's very interesting to me. When I'm going through scripture, there's like a theme that keeps running page after page after page. And it goes like this. Sin, judgment, patience, forgiveness, changed lives, greater understanding of sin, more appreciation for judgment, thankfulness for patience, greater understanding of forgiveness, lives changed even more to be like Christ, greater view of the gap between holiness and our sinfulness, and it keeps growing and growing as we understand it more and more. Today we might be very happy to have our sins forgiven. Down the road we're going to say, Wow, wasn't that a great thing, our sins were forgiven. And then down the road we're going to say, That's amazing, our sins are forgiven. Because this is really the struggle of Romans chapter 7. That's where you're in right now. The things you want to do, you don't do. The things you know you should do, you don't do. And these kind of things that line up in, in life, it's like a chapter right out of our book. And yet this is what growth looks like. We keep seeing the process where our sins forgiven and our lives are changed and God is patient and we grow and we grow and we grow and isn't that what Peter says by the very end of the book grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that's going to take effort it doesn't just happen we're to grow in it, grow in it grow in it and so consider your efforts to be found this way and consider others last one in verse number 15 Regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Every day that we get, gives us one more opportunity to share this with somebody else. To share it with somebody else. He says, Paul wrote this down. Our beloved brother Paul wrote this down with his wisdom, that he wrote these things to you. And he he speaks about, yep, Paul writes this down. This is... What it's about. Peter's writing this down. This is what it's about. Every day there's a, a purpose here. Why are we still here? You ever hear people ask that question? Mostly older people. <laughs> when they get somewhere around 95 ish or so, they start asking that question Why am I still here? I hope <laughs> it's that late. I don't know. But they, I've heard it so many times in my life as a pastor talking to elderly folks in the church why am I still here? I don't know why. I'm good for nothing. And I always remind him, no, you're good for something really important because I need prayed for, and you're here, and you can pray for me. My dad was good about that. He was always praying for us, and it touched my heart to hear it, that he's blind, and he can't drive, and he can't do this, and he can't do that, but he says, I could pray for you. And yet, when things were really tough, he started asking those questions. like Why does the Lord still linger? Why doesn't he come for me? Why doesn't he come for me? well there's a reason why it's not that God's forgotten you or somehow you're put on that backlog of appointments in his book you know he's left us here for a purpose and if we as believers know what's going to happen especially to an unbeliever who's the one to tell them we are we are and it turns right into the whole point of evangelism doesn't it so understanding this whole passage kind of reflects back on us in a mirror as to our maturity in understanding these things and our response to it you know how God has worked in our life to spare us these things and we can't just walk around and say it's nothing to do with me and walk off as if it has no effects on us it's supposed to drive us to our duty our obligation right now to live godly lives and to share that message with others because This day is coming. This day is coming. And that's the push of a chapter like this. It's a powerful section, and I just kind of bounced on the highlights as we went through this. But I recommend you dig into it a little deeper and see these things and see what the Lord would do to challenge your heart to say, I will be this way, because I know our time is short. I believe it's short. Do you? I think so. All right. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us understand. Help us to respond. Help us to move forward. We've got the treasure of the gospel in us. The the earthen vessels that we are. Weak as we are and fragile as we are. Yet you have entrusted to us your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we go forth from here, we'll just be those who love you, long for you, and live for you. Uh, Work in our hearts. And drive us again to reevaluate and see how we're living today. And we thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.